Right. So my current interest beyond the National Bible Bee contestants is economics, as I mentioned earlier. I'm finding it fascinating, Joe. And uh, it's I've got, a, I've got a feeling that economics is a little bit like religion in that like religion in the early days where it was sort of controlled by a, sort of a select group and the rest of us just sort of go, well, they must know what they're talking about, must be right. But, and, and now there's heresy with the modern monetary theory. Correct. And uh, there's faith involved in it because, you know, when it comes to currency, there's a strong faith element required in order for it to actually work. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also where we've, we've been told sort of just a classical version of economics and it's quite possible that that's very wrong and that doesn't actually explain how economics works at all and that quite mainstream economists have been missing vital information in explaining the economy. And there seems to be a bunch of people coming out now who are economists but like heretics. It worries me a little bit in that I hope I'm not doing what people were doing with vaccines where do your own research and become an expert on vaccinations and suddenly you are debunking all of the mainstream sort of vaccination work. But I, I'm heading in that path where I'm actually – but at least I'm conscious of it. So, I, I, yeah, I am conscious of it that, okay, these new explanations might sound all fine and dandy and it's debunking what the commonly held view is. But oh, for a long time I had a bit of a suspicion about – economics where if you really want to compare it to a lot of the other fields in a university, they want to present themselves as a hard science, but there's a lot of dark art involved in it as well, I think, Joe. I was going to say a lot of the soft sciences, social sciences are very similar. Yeah, but I think they've tried to present themselves as a hard science and with a lot of math and formulas but at the end of the day, I think they've been running a bit of a scam, a lot of them, and they haven't quite got it worked out. So over the course of 2023, dear listener, you and I are going to work out economics and how the world's actually running. So, so yeah, I'm going to run through some of the things that I've learned from the books over the last few weeks that I've been reading. But one of the things that's got me... Here we go. Mel says, it's not the same. Vaccination is based on science. Economics is sociology at best. So go for it, Trevor. Thanks, Mel. I will. Joe, do you have any podcasts that you listen to because you really dislike the podcast? <laughs> have you got a hate listen podcast? No, not anymore. Right. <laughs> oh, you had one before? Well, trigonometry I was listening to and yep. they just went completely off the deep end. Right, yeah, yeah. And even so, Joe, Joe Rogan was one of those... He had some really great people on and he had long format conversations where you could get deep into the weeds with some really interesting people. He also had some complete dickheads on and he would get into the weeds with them. And I think they both, particularly around the time of lockdown, just went completely off the rails. Yes. And and just ended up having right-wing nutters on. Yeah. 
So a bit like in the way that I actually cancelled my subscription to The Australian, so I'm just down to the Courier Mail at the moment, but reading those was just to sort of see what other people mm-hmm. are thinking. And there's a podcast I've been listening to, which is about this guy who, who's supporting and promoting Bitcoin. Yes. So I've been listening to him. And, you know, I'll, I'll listen to him and in my head I'll go, no, uh-uh, no, not, not that either. And, like, he will come out quite often with a, a 20 or 30-word sentence with five concepts and I'll disagree with nearly every single thing he says. I think he gets it so badly wrong. So I've been enjoying that. But I've been thinking, I actually reached out to him and said, hey, I disagree with a lot of what you say. Would you like somebody to come on your podcast and just have a polite debate? And uh, he hasn't responded. But I did think part of the benefit of that is if you do have to say, you know, mount an argument, you really have to think carefully, more carefully. You think you know something until you actually have to explain it. It's easy to make assertions. Yes, and you can easy to think in your head, oh, yeah, I know that, until you actually have to spell out the concepts. It's not that easy. So anyway, some of the ideas I've got rattling around in my head are sort of as a response from this Bitcoin podcast. But money fascinates me, as you would know, for a long time, and the origin of money. So one of the things I would have said to him about Bitcoin as to why it's a heap of shit is – the thing about normal money is there's value to it because eventually you're going to have to pay tax and the sovereign government in Australia is going to say, you have to pay your tax and it's got to be in Aussie dollars and each country will do that where they'll require payment of your tax in their particular currency. No sovereign government is going to say that about Bitcoin and so there's no government body that's ever going to be interested in propping it up. So it's these people think it's going to increase in value, not just as a medium of exchange for just swapping bits of bits coin around to pay for small transaction, not as something like a bit of a convenience, but but as an actual investment, they think it's going to go up. But there's nothing there that will actually sort of support it from a government point of view. And I think people think that money came about as a means of assisting the barter system. So there's this theory in people's heads that used to be that we'd have economies where I own a goat and you've got some grain and I agree to swap the goat for some grain and we just walk around in the village continually swapping and bartering items directly and that at some point people were using bits of valuable metal like gold which eventually got converted into coins as an easy means of measuring them and and that money was introduced as a means of greasing the wheel of, of the barter system in, in primitive economies. And two things is... Turns out there never really were barter economies where people were swapping things like that. In that sort of primitive stage, if I had a goat and it was too much for me to eat because I'd just killed it or, I'd, you know, a deer or I'd hunted down or something, basically I'd have my fill and then share it with you, Joe, and a bunch of other people and that would just be a little credit in the back of everybody's mind. Oh, Trevor fed everybody the other day with that piece of meat. That was pretty good. So the next time they got something spare... 
they would then, you know, share, share it with me. And a lot of society was based on people tallying in their heads whether somebody was a sharer or not a sharer. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a direct simultaneous exchange of goats for grain. There was just a build-up of credit points that you had to maintain as being a worthwhile member of a community. So, so these societies never really ran barter-type arrangements in the way people might think. When it comes to money, it seems that the origin of it was in relation to early agriculture when uh, there was a build-up of grain, for example, in silos and we had palaces and kings and emperors sort of going back 3,000 or 4,000 years and little sort of chits would be issued about the grain in the silo, who it belonged to, who, who was owed the grain or... I was going to say and, promissory notes. Yes, and, and these, were, these were issued by the palace to people. So it was, a, it was more or less a, an IOU that started off between the palace or the government and individuals, not as something between individuals. And it had value because it was like an IOU from the palace. It actually mm-hmm. meant something. And over time, people might swap these IOUs between themselves and they might particularly need to because at some stage the palace might say, oh, we're going to tax everybody. The king needs grain to pay for some soldiers or whatever and all of you guys have got to contribute some of the grain that's in the silo, so start handing in your chits. So that was kind of the origin of money that I've come across, which was, uh, and forgive them their debts by Michael Hudson. So if people thinking about Bitcoin as being just like money, it sort of helps to shoot down to them and say, that's, that's not what money was actually originally intended. It was part of a contract. It had government backing from the very beginning and your Bitcoin doesn't. So that's a key difference. It's a pump and dump scheme. Yes. It, yes. It, and, the, and, well, one of the reasons why I've look, been looking at Bitcoin, dear listener, is just in the podcasting world, there is a, a thing called Podcasting 2.0. They're basically creating apps now and the ability where on certain apps, there's a Fountain app and there's an Podverse app and there's a couple of other apps where if you've got money in a Bitcoin wallet, if you've got Satoshis, which are like one one hundred one millionth or, or something like that of a Bitcoin, you could do an instant donation to a podcaster of Satoshis on an app. And there's a certain element of the podcasting world that loves the idea of this. So there's a lot of talk about it. So that's part of the reasons why I'm interested in Bitcoin. Anyway, so that's the origin of money, not from greasing the wheels and making it easy for a barter economy, but it was really government-driven from the early stages. And there was also, Joe, a lot of debt forgiveness in the ancient Assyrian and Babylonian empires. Apparently the Bible says forgive debts every seven years. Yes, and it was a very regular thing because now these were debts that were owed by the commoners to the palace Mm-hmm. And when a new, when an old emperor died, new emperor came in, very common 
to wipe out all debts. One of the reasons for that was that with interest, it just got out of hand for people where they couldn't actually pay the debt. So in order for the society to function, people were losing their properties and becoming almost slaves to other people and it was causing regular problems. So throughout that history, it's a very regular occurrence of debt forgiveness by common people to the palace. Now, that didn't necessarily mean inter-business debts, but certainly commoners in the palace would have their debts wiped out. So Landon Hardbottom says, send me your useless Bitcoin and I'll store it for you. <laughs> Thanks, Landon. So, so where was I? Yeah, debt forgiveness was something very common in the ancient world and that sort of stopped around the Greek and Roman civilizations, where that regular debt forgiveness stopped and sort of private property was held in a more exalted status and that's continued on since the Greek and the Romans but prior to them debt forgiveness was a, a regular occurrence so so what else have I been reading about lately of course capitalism is a recent invention only since the industrial revolution and while we've had markets for thousands of years just a market is quite different to capitalism there's a TV series called The Ascent of Money. It's quite old now. Right. By an Irish guy. I think it was a BBC or Channel 4 documentary series. Mm -hmm. And it goes into the bond market, not the stock market. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch East India Company being the first yeah. traded company and what a difference that made. Yes. The, the ability to create a, a public company. Yes. That you could buy shares in. Yep. This, this pooling together of resources to be able to take on something that would be too expensive as an individual. Yes. And then the benefits that were given to these companies where they were able to actually levy taxes on the Indians and things like this, mm -hmm. almost like a government with their own soldiers and all the rest of it to go with it. So, so, so basically capitalism requires an unsustainable growth and this is so that people can repay debt and interest. If you're going to, you know, people borrow on the hope and expectation of growth, which will allow them to repay the debt and the interest. And capitalism requires, you know, 2 to 3% per year. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a few episodes ago. 3% growth means doubling the size of the economy every 23 years and then doubling it again and then doubling it again and again. At some point, we won't be able to do that. And the problem is that GDP is not just plucked out of thin air, but it's connected to energy and resources. So it means doubling and doubling every 23 years the energies and resource use. Or, or pollution. Mm. Because mm. pollution is also a GDP positive. Yes, that's right. Yep. So, so a growth, a growth that's going to be unsustainable. And the question is, well, how did, how did capitalism maintain this growth since the Industrial Revolution? Like, how was it able to do it for so long anyway? Colonialism. And, correct. You said colonialism, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So really interesting book, Capital and Imperialism, 
Theory, History and the Present by Utsa and Prabhat Patnaik. Difficult read, dear listener, like this one. The whole four weeks, not easy. And I'm going to summarise it in two minutes, which is just a crime, really, because the amount of detail in there. But essentially, companies like the East India Company and others, Mm -hmm. well, the UK in particular, was just draining an enormous amount of money out of India. And it was essentially capitalism thrived because it was able to just subjugate the global south and not only get cheap commodities and resources from them, but also force them to produce the products that the UK wanted, say things like cash crops or or other things, so that these people then were unable to feed themselves because they'd been forced into growing things for the UK and then they were forced into being the market for UK products. So their artisans was were were forced into producing these cash crops and the companies were the, the countries were then forced to then be a market for British products as well. So the book's quite extensive about about how all that worked. So actually I'll read a bit here, page hundred and thirty one. Give you a bit of a flavour for some of it. Bear with me one second. So, the transfer process at its inception was relatively transparent. The East India Company's trade monopoly, granted by the British Parliament, began in 1600. The company acquired tax revenue collecting rights in Bengal province in 1765 and substantive drain starts precisely from that date. Bengal's population of about 30 million people was nearly four times that of Britain, and the rapacity of the company, which forcibly trebled revenue collection over the following five years, decimated one-third of the population in the Great 1770 Famine. Full recovery had not taken place by 1792, And yet the land revenue fixed under the permanent settlement in that year in Bengal exceeded the British government's taxes from land in Britain. Just shameless raping of of these countries is essentially how the UK was able to sustain its early days of capitalism. What's that? Ireland as well. Yes, a bunch I, I of com- listened to a history on the potato famine mm. uh, and it was literally, it wasn't that there weren't enough potatoes, it was that the potatoes were all marked for export to England to be yes. sold Yes, and the Irish couldn't afford to eat. Yes. Yeah. So according to this book I just was reading from, the, the depression in the 1930s was actually sort of signified the exhaustion of the of the growth in that area of subjugating colonies. So while they were still under subjugation, it sort of maxed out what they could get from these colonies at that time. And the Great Depression was was kind of where capitalism could no longer grow from those sort of that colonial agricultural raping and taxation. They'd, they'd maxed out on that one. So, so how did capitalism need to grow after that? Well, you had fiscal stimulus where governments were, were basically introducing money into the economy. So you had the New Deal, 
which introduced money. You then had World War II. You then had continuing US war deficits in the years following, which was a type of Keynesianism. So Keynes is all about, John Maynard Keynes is about the government spending money to prop up economies if they start to flatten. There was um, a move off the gold standard as well. Yes, there was a move from the gold standard as well. You had women entering the workforce, so that boosted productivity again. You had uh, credit cards. Uh, you had the 1980s draining of the commons, where we had public utilities sold off, mm. sold off, privatised. All these things that I'm mentioning are little prods that enabled capitalism, which might have slowed to zero in terms of growth, to grow. We then had the 2000 dot com boom, and then the 2008 real estate bubbles, which were as a result of subprime mortgages. Yes. In recent times, we've had the COVID-19 fiscal stimulus, where money governments have thrown money at, at corporations. And then we've had super low interest rates leading to asset price bubbles, all ways of propping up the system so that growth can be maintained. And Joe, it looks to me that there's no tricks left. There's no more colonies that can be found. That's why... We can mine the moon. Well, or Russia or China. That's one of the reasons why America is so keen to get their hands on China and start a war because that would be another prod, another boost to keep capitalism going if they could access the Chinese and Russian markets. And uh, with recent low interest rates, all of our assets are already overvalued. So, so yeah, that was an interesting concept of, okay, capitalism requires this unsustainable growth. The fact that it has been going for so long has really been as a result of a number of artificial tricks, some of them quite nasty when it comes to India and Ireland and the colonies, and that and that essentially we're running out of tricks. And, it, and just on the face of it, if you're talking about 3% growth every year, doubling an economy every 23 years, common sense tells you you just can't do that continuously in a closed system like our planet is. So, so there's that I've been reading about, those concepts. And that one was about private banks create money, Joe. Have you heard this one? No. So the myth is that, that governments introduce money into the economy, but it's actually created by, by private banks. So bank is just sitting there and it's not that they've got a lack of money to lend, it's that they have a lack of suitable clients to customers to lend money to. And they can just, if, if, if I go to a bank and I come up with a proposition where I say, give me $100,000, I've got this great business idea, they essentially just create a book entry where they create $100,000 and mm-hmm. put it in my account and it becomes into existence where nothing else gets subtracted from the bank's point of view. They can just generate and create the ledger account, $100,000. And 
it's not like they they have a corresponding ledger with the government where they've got to grab that money from the government. They just create the ledger account. So private banks are responsible for something like 90% of, of money generation. And I've got to look into it more, but the argument was that with quantitative easing, where central banks were providing money, yeah. it was still up to the private banks to lend it out somewhere or something. They still had to have a suitable person who wanted to borrow it. And mm. a lot a of the money was able to pay back with interest. Yeah, a lot of the money just wasn't used. And the few mm. that did use it were basically companies that did share buybacks because the executives realised that this was a better way of, of getting Increasing bonuses. Their value. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that's an interesting concept that private banks create money, not the government. So that's the sort of. They only control the money. Hmm. Well, they control interest rates to an extent. So through the central bank. And that's the sort of blunt instrument of central banks is interest rates. And when interest rates got to zero, that was when they ran out of out of tricks. And we had this quantitative easing. There was a study done that said, was quantitative easing to do anything? And they looked at like 50 studies and funnily enough, if the studies were done by central banks, the consensus they, they was yes. that it was successful. <laughs> and where the studies were done by people who weren't part of the central bank, then the studies show that it just didn't do anything. So I've got to get my head around quantitative easing and creation of money. But, but yeah, basically most money is, is created by private banks. I just watched an interview with Russell Brand. Who, You're a masochist, Joe. Was this a hate listen? Was this one of those podcasts? No, it was just a funny interview with, I think, Jonathan Ross. And oh. apparently he's made a documentary on basically the money that went into propping up the financial institutions whilst the average person on the street was forced to into austerity in the oh. UK. Russell Brand did this one. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't know how watchable it will be, but certainly the subject matter is interesting. He'd be one of these guys who sometimes is right mm. about something and is quite entertaining and, and good and then another yes. issue is completely nuts. Yeah. So just trying to think of somebody else who was like that. Yeah, I can't think of it to mind. So, so yeah, that's the stuff that I've been looking at and the ideas I've been thrashing around in my head. So trick is to try and work out a system that would replace capitalism because if you were to try and change things, mm -hmm. it would be through rules that are unattractive to capital and are attractive to labour. Yes. As in the working class. And, and, and labour don't control parliament. Yes. And also, you know... Labor can't easily move around the world, but capital can. Mm -hmm. And at the whiff, at the whiff of of laws that are unattractive to capital, they will exit a country, and thereby precipitate a crisis, which will be sort of self fulfilling. Where they would go, and, oh, this laws that and you're if proposing. And they don't, the Americans will invade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
But, you know, if Australia was to try and do something funky and new that somehow addressed the imbalance and, and took on capital to some extent, then you'd have to create laws that would prevent the flight capital of capital. Yeah. And how's that going to go down with the rest of the world? It's just not going to happen, is it? So it can be quite depressing, this whole thing, but it is interesting. So, yeah, I think that's the main things I wanted to tell you about that I was thinking about. 